Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Philip Ewing, a veteran Washington journalist and the election security editor for National Public Radio. Phil talks with the Spectrum podcast about election security for the 2020 elections, everything from voter suppression to foreign interference. Phil, we hear about election security. Uh, Tell us where we are now, you know, about 40 days out from the election. What are you hearing? What do we need to know? Well, the good news is people are paying attention to this at every level, in every state and county and in Washington in a way that they never have before. And so if one of the lessons from the 2016 election was a failure of imagination and a failure of reaction by officialdom at all those levels, that is not true this year. The director of national intelligence, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, all the many manifold secretaries of state of the states and others are all looking and working very hard on this problem in a way that they weren't before. And so uh, one metaphor that we've used in our coverage is it's kind of like thinking about terrorism after the 2001 September 11th attacks. You're, it's much more difficult to have a big spectacular phenomenon like that take place again because people are now engaged but that doesn't mean the problem goes away. And so the challenge is, first of all, what aren't you looking for? What can't you see? Because it's outside of your scan, even one that has been energized as much as uh, the one has been for officials. And what's taking place in plain sight that you might not be able to have the tools to deal with. And one takeaway from social media companies to big platforms such as Google and Facebook and Twitter and others and from US government officials is that a lot of the efforts by foreign governments to influence Americans have moved into the open and are taking place in public view. In one sense, they're less effective because it had a certain quality when uh, Russians, for example, in St. Petersburg were pretending to be Americans on Facebook and fraudulently engaging in the election and pinging real Americans and asking them to take, take certain actions. And it's much less uh, pernicious if you have official-looking quasi-news accounts like Sputnik and RT doing a lot of the same messaging and agitation. You can tell what those accounts are, and you can understand quickly why they're saying what they're saying. 
But at the same time, there's a chain reaction that's taking place, especially on social media, about the sharing of disinformation, misinformation, false information, rumor mongering, etc., which um, may be proceeding under its own energy at this point. We seem to have two things. One is the security of the actual voting process and the security of the votes. And then the other one is basically a social media phenomenon, the security of uh, outrageous comments uh, on both sides uh, and interference from foreign governments. Do those two issues sometimes get conflated? They do. And it's important to group them into those two categories because there's a very sophisticated high-level security issue associated with who can get access to a state's photo database to be able to do things to it just to control the quality of that data set, um, who can get access to the machines with which voters interact, um, who can get access to the vendors that support a lot of that process because state governments do some things, but they also pay contractors to do a lot of other things, who's policing those networks and what's taking place within those networks. And then there's the separate category of uh, Michigas that you addressed, which is what's happening with the information environment in the United States. And the old rubric uh, of active measures, as they're called, often comes down to you can change ballots or you can change minds. Sometimes you can try to do both and there are also other things that you can do, which we, we might also talk about. And it's a lot cheaper and easier to change minds and to, if not substitute true facts or true discourse in a target country, um, erode the fidelity that anyone has in anything they see within that target country, which has kind of been what's happening in the United States, not just since 2016, but probably over a longer period of years. So you might not necessarily need Americans to believe that they should vote for candidate X as opposed to candidate Y, but maybe that they shouldn't believe anything that either X or Y says. And if that has the effect in your target group of either making them support one or the other or staying home and not supporting either of them, then you can have an effect. And with elections as close as elections are in the West and certainly in the United States in our lifetimes uh, for the past several presidential cycles, you don't need to hit that many people to be able to have a decisive effect. You can hit 100,000 people or fewer of them, and if they live in the right places, then um, you can influence the election potentially decisively. The question is what's going to happen this time. One thing we do know from the FBI director, Christopher Wray, who talked about this with the House Homeland Security Committee recently, was that he's seen a lot more of the attempted mind-changing than the attempted ballot-changing this year. Uh, the defenses and censors for agencies such as his, the FBI, the National Security Agency, and other officials um, are tuned pretty well to be able to look for the kind of activity they know to watch for targeting county-level, state-level election systems. And according to what Ray, the FBI director, said, uh, there hasn't been as big a wave of cyber attacks along those lines as there have been efforts aimed at the social media platforms to try to influence what Americans are saying to each other, what they believe about what's taking place and what they believe about the uh, validity or the fidelity of the election process itself. So if we look at, at this election, uh, the common uh, 
complaint from a lot of people, uh, lay people, is that, look, we had all this alleged interference in 2016 or factually interference in 2016, depending on who you listen to. But we've done nothing between 2016 and 2020 to keep this from happening again. Is that a valid criticism or not? No, it's not a valid criticism because a great deal has been done. And uh, to give you one example, which also came out of a recent uh, House hearing, in 2016, Facebook specifically and U.S. government officials generally didn't recognize what was taking place in terms of the spreading of disinformation and social media agitation and or they didn't consider it important until everyone added up all the other things in the column of election interference and thought, this is really extraordinary, the scale and quantity of stuff that's being done, um, in this case, by the Russians to the political environment within the United States. And so one strategy that has uh, been put into practice this year is when the FBI identifies schemes like those from 2016, it steps in much quicker and tries to smash them apart so they don't develop um, momentum and uh, roots, if you will, in the way that they were before. For example, the FBI identified some efforts by the Internet Research Agency, this infamous uh, kind of troll mill or content mill in St. Petersburg, which is linked with the Russian government, to use Facebook to recruit American writers to do jobs for a website which also was being created by the Russians that were criticizing the Democratic presidential ticket from the left. So in this scam, the Russians wanted to get real Americans to write stories for this website that they were creating about how uh, former Vice President Joe Biden and California Senator Kamala Harris were not progressive enough on certain issues. And uh, because the FBI identified that uh, quickly, it told Facebook, you need to deactivate these accounts because they're engaged in this behavior and Facebook did and the scam imploded much quicker than it might have under other circumstances. We don't see all of the efforts like that. This one in this case happened to have been announced by Facebook and the FBI later took credit for it, but work along those lines to step in and stop that kind of interference early is new in this presidential cycle and hasn't taken place before because the platforms and the U.S. government officials involved believe that they can be more effective at stopping it at the seedling stage than allowing it to get time and take on kind of a, a appearance of credibility. Um, however, there's still a great deal that's taking place, and it's a very active fight right now. We get reports periodically uh, from Google and Microsoft and uh, cyber specialists about the cyber attacks that they continue to detect against political targets in the United States. One of the big stories in 2016 was very sophisticated cyber attacks by the Russian military intelligence agency, the GRU, against political targets of many different uh, sizes and shapes, including most famously the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman that year. Um, as part of this effort, material from those attacks was released publicly to embarrass them and change the conversation within the United States about what was taking place. Nothing on that magnitude has taken place this year yet, but we still have time. And 
uh, one question is always um, about how the enemy gets a vote. And as American officials and these important platforms like your Facebook and Twitters and others change their response, how are the attackers going to change their attacks? So it changes hour to hour, day to day, minute to minute. And I expect it to be a very contested storyline up to and through the actual election day itself. So let me get some things clear here. Uh, Generally, we hear that uh, interference is produced by Russians, uh, by Chinese, uh, taking opposite sides of who they favor in the election. And then we toss Iran in to, to that mix. Those are the three primary countries that we hear about. Is, is that accurate to focus just on those three, or do we have multiple countries uh, trying to do the same thing? According to what U.S. government officials say, there are multiple countries and other operatives in this space doing this work. But there is a great deal of political controversy about how much equivalence to give those actors, those big three that you mentioned and the other, you know, mischief makers and um, cyber operatives that are doing this work. And this is one of the places that most frustrates me as the guy on the outside of the aquarium, you know, banging on the glass, trying to see what's taking place inside without access to what uh, the U.S. intelligence community actually sees and is doing about this. All we can kind of say is what we've been told or what we hear. And uh, the position taken by the president and his and his administration is that this is um, an active space in which a group of equals are waging a war um, of peers to try to bring about the result they want. As you mentioned, according to the director of national intelligence, um, the Chinese government would like to see Trump lose in November and for Biden to be elected. The Russians would like to take the opposite uh, outcome, uh, probably because they're very suspicious of Biden, given what they know about his policies and the promises he's made about how much tougher he would be if he were elected and the history that they have dealing indirectly with Biden through the medium of Ukraine, which was part of his portfolio in the second uh, term of the Obama administration. And then the uh, Iranians have much less well-formed of a political view uh, in terms of the outcome they want to bring about, except to say that they want to disrupt as much as possible the political uh, environment in the United States and damage as much as possible whoever becomes the next president. That's according to the DNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. What Democrats say is that actually this is not a contest of equals and these are not peers. They argue that the Russians are much more pernicious and much more capable. Uh, They have a much more sophisticated understanding of the trade space in the United States. They have a great deal more experience doing this because they were doing it for decades before the most famous and most prominent uh, example in 2016 of these active measures. And uh, what you'll hear the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and uh, the Chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff, both California Democrats, say is that the president, because of whatever his whatever underpins his opinions about Russia or his behavior toward Russia and the Russian government, has to throw these other names in the mix. And so the conversation can't just be about Russia for whatever reason they argue um, is behind Trump's 
opinions and Trump's actions. Um, I, I can't say which is correct sitting here on the outside because all we can say is what uh, we get from officialdom, what's a part of the uh, readouts that make their way into the public. Our network NPR has interviewed former intelligence leaders, including the former principal deputy national um, director of intelligence. And she told our network that her opinion would be that the Russians are definitely the most capable of these actors. Uh, but at the same time, she wouldn't agree with the premise that there was some uh, political smokescreen being pumped out in terms of including the other names. So that's where the situation becomes confusing and where no one on the outside has a very clear answer to your question. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let me ask you to clear up uh, another thing. We, we're hearing, at least from President Trump and, and mostly from him, about uh, the uh, mail-in ballots and how uh, you know, fraught with fraud they are and, and the potential to uh, uh, jinx the election and, and to uh, turn it one way or the other. That plants a seed of with the public that certainly mail-in balance are aren't uh, to be considered accurate, and perhaps the whole legitimacy of the election process isn't considered to be accurate. So that being said, how does that mesh with foreign interference that you've been talking about? How would those two work together? Uh, to delegitimize our election process. It's one of the things that has made this era so unique in terms of the long history of these active measures and this foreign interference because the most prominent political leader in the United States in many cases echoes the messages that are coming in f from those foreign governments. You know, the, the goal is to sow distrust and uh have people conclude that nothing can be known, nothing is knowable, you just have to shrug your shoulders and say, they're all liars, they're all cheats, nothing is on the level. That's a good outcome for people who don't want Americans to engage and want them to conclude that they should just stay home and not request, in this case, a mail ballot. But you're right that this year, as many as half of uh, likely voters in the United States could request a mailed 
ballot. They're called different things in different states. Absentee was the phrase that people used um, historically because in the old concept, you might have a handful of voters, for example, who would be traveling or indisposed in some way during an election and state governments wanted to create a provision for them to be able to still cast a vote, even though they couldn't go to a polling place. But this year during the coronavirus disaster, you know, we're being told to stay home. I've been working, (laughs) I've been working out of my bedroom here for six months instead of out of our office in Washington, DC. And so more Americans than ever are expected to request these mail ballots, fill them out and return them. Trump, who, uh, uses a mailed ballot and has voted by mail for years, as have many members of his uh, camp and his administration, says that what he is concerned about is that people will tamper with them and that he and the attorney general uh, have said that uh, there's some prospect that a foreign government could send huge numbers of these counterfeit ballots that they say might be created and uh, interfere with election results in that way. But the FBI itself has said that they have no evidence that that is taking place, that that's even even the subject of foreign plotting right now. Um, However, one of the challenges is you have foreign governments trying to make Americans as cynical as possible about their democracy. And you also have their president also trying to make, in many cases, Americans as cynical as possible about their democracy. And what is the result of that? Well, we'll have to see how it turns out, except that if you had a situation in which uh, messaging about democratic practices was being propounded in a different way, or in which messaging about voter cynicism were being repudiated at the highest levels, we might have a different environment than the one we have. However, we are where we are. Um, One thing that we can say, um, our team has done a great deal of reporting about this, is that although it's true that uh, voting fraud and uh, fraud in voting by mail does take place, it typically takes place at very low levels, fractions of 1% of the votes cast in a population. So a lot of it is um, framed in the small to big fallacy that you might hear uh, from someone who says, well, I know someone who was hurt in a car accident the other day. That means that no one should ever drive anywhere because driving is unsafe. It is possible for someone to be hurt or killed in a car accident, but it's also possible for millions of Americans to drive to work and home safely every day for years at a time because of the way that small things don't necessarily need to be phenomena taking place. Generally, that's been the experience with photo fraud across the board and specifically with the return of uh, ballots by mail. More and more states are allowing early voting, not just voting by mail, early voting. I believe we have seven states currently that People can already go to their board of elections or designated spots and vote in person. Uh, We'll have more soon. Ohio will open up and have that uh, process available among other uh, Midwestern states. How does that change the dynamic of voter security and all of these outside influences uh, with disinformation? One way it changes the dynamic is by taking away the traditional red circled box on the calendar that many of us remember what an election was for most of our lifetimes. Historically, the way Americans lived a political season was um, maybe you start to think about paying attention after Labor Day, and then by the time the leaves are falling off the trees, there's yard signs up and people are talking about it. 
and then the first Tuesday in November you have a vote and then it's kind of over, you live with the results. But these days, because American life is lived in kind of a nonstop uh, state of political agitation, it means that people can make up their minds and then act on that uh, mind that they've made up much sooner than they ever could. Um, I don't know this year what result that's going to bring, whether that's going to advantage the incumbent or advantage the challengers. Um, but it means that if your goal at one time was to have everyone everywhere have their mind made up by a certain date, you can't do that anymore. You have to expand the aperture as much as possible because Americans can begin making uh, conclusive and dispositive judgments about how they're going to vote um, weeks or months in advance. And uh, we were talking a moment ago about more Americans using mail ballots this year than probably ever before. Uh, the effective election day for people who are doing that is probably around mid-October because we're being told by the Postal Service and by other authorities that the safest way to be sure that a ballot gets in on time is to cast it as early as practical, which means that instead of people waiting till November, people are going to have to make up their minds right about now or in the next few days to be able to get the ball rolling so that their vote is submitted uh, in time. The other interesting thing about it is on election day and through the hours and days that follow election day, it's possible that this year we could see kind of a weird situation because every state processes those votes differently. There'll be a lot of people, probably half or more, who are voting in person the old-fashioned way. Then there'll be this core of uh, ballots that need to be counted that have come in in the mail. And uh, there could be those that arrive after election day but have been postmarked appropriately. There are all kinds of lawsuits all over the United States as to whether such ballots would be counted or thrown out. And uh, the court challenges in each state will determine what happens. But we may not know who won the presidential race for a day, a week. Um, no one right now wants to go on the record as assessing definitively when the result of the election could be locked in. And that doesn't even include the challenges that could take place from either campaign legally in the states in which the results might have been that close. An uncertain election means that you can have more uncertainty if that's one of your goals among the body politic with disinformation. Well, it just seems to me that we'll have uh, no concessions, uh, and certainly people will be declaring themselves winners whether the uh, votes have been counted or not. Right. And there's, there's a scenario in which we could be litigating the outcome of the election by – Christmas, depending on the breaks. There's also a scenario in which, uh, for various reasons, because of the moment that we're living in, we could get very convincing results um, right up front. And unfortunately, for those of us who are living through it and trying to cover it, it's, it's a very difficult situation to wrap your brain around. But fortunately for those whose goal is to raise doubts and corrode faith in uh the democratic process, it's a target-rich environment. I want to talk about one more thing, and and hopefully you can pull the veil off of this. You, you mentioned earlier we're having more activity from social media companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, to name a few. 
You also mentioned that we're having uh, more or at least different activities from the FBI than we did in earlier times. How did those two work together or are they separate? Can you help us understand that? They're separate, but they have found themselves in a very uncomfortable shotgun marriage after the 2016 experience based largely on the expediency that it affords to each one of them. In the case of the feds and officialdom, um, the FBI, according to its critics, did not cover itself in glory in 2016 or since in terms of its conduct and a lot of its big um, investigations. And the social media platforms have been raked over the coals many times by critics, including those in Washington and Congress in both parties for how they uh, governed themselves and responded to the challenge presented by the active measures at that time. And so these two groups uh, don't necessarily like each other. Uh, they don't trust each other as much as they might. And you'll hear them talk candidly about what they consider still to be the shortcomings and failures in this relationship. But they also have no choice because of the stakes of them working well together um, than to try and do that. So what you'll hear the FBI say about social media is that uh, it wishes it had more insight into what it's doing. Um, it wishes that they would reveal even more information to officials about what's taking place on these networks. And what you'll hear from social platforms is that they are doing as much as they can, but they feel in a lot of cases they're being maligned unfairly for things that are taking place outside their own can. And to take one example, um, you know, if a foreign government is using its own brand to send messages into the uh, U.S. information environment through a government-controlled so-called news organization or in the personality of uh, government ministers or official spokespeople, uh, you know, that's not Twitter's fault that they're doing that, for example. Um, those users are just as legit, and so all it can do is just flag that that's taking place. Um, this tension is probably not going to go away, and it's kind of like what used to take place in a different era between, for example, um, the New York Times and President George W. Bush when uh, the newspaper was revealing some of the things that the Bush administration was doing or the Washington Post. Uh, there's always a tension between the First Amendment activities of free speech, reporting, and communications and the needs of officialdom. And what has made the whole election security discipline so challenging, but also in a lot of ways so interesting, is that it lives squarely in the middle of a very gray zone about what should take place. Um, the other thing that's important to say is the social media platforms desperately do not want to be the subject of new regulation from the Congress. Um, they don't want to have this legal framework under which they operate, not as publishers in the way that the New York Times and the Washington Post do, but as so-called platforms where they're just neutral arbiters for the content that's on their services um, means that they can't be uh, legally liable for that content. Um, they really don't want Congress to change that, and they really don't want Congress to for force them to actually have to take responsibility for that content. And so they're running as fast as they can to try to be good corporate citizens and to lean forward uh, as much as they are able to within their own current business model and being seen as uh, 
good citizens that way. Um, the outcome of this election will be pretty influential in seeing what happens there. But there's also a scenario under any circumstances in which, let's just say, for argument's sake, there's a big Democratic wave this year and um, Democrats take control of the Senate. Um, there could be a new wave of legislation, you know, sponsored by people like Elizabeth Warren, who would be newly empowered with a Democratic president in place to break up these companies like Facebook um, or impose new regulation on them. And so they want their record in terms of serving Americans and serving the United States to be as clean as they can if and when a scenario like that potentially were to come to pass. One last question, and it'll be quick because I know you're on a time crunch. So let me ask this. Do we have any data, any analysis of what impact it has for Facebook or Twitter to say this post is inaccurate, this post uh, is blocked, whatever the appropriate terminology. Do we have any data on what impact that has on the general electorate, especially when we have the news media saying President Trump said X, Y, and Z, but it was blocked by Twitter? Well, you know, Tom, that's a great question. I don't know uh, whether, I don't know what the research shows about that. Um, and I also know how much the platforms say they agonize about doing that because in the case of Twitter specifically, Trump is probably the only user on the platform that continues to keep it relevant for most people. Um, there was this great fallacy about Twitter for so many years that it was small d democratic and that it represented populations and that it would be this huge equalizer. And in fact, that is that was never true and it remains untrue today. It's a very unrepresentative and highly selective platform specifically. It just happens to be the one that the president favors uh, being, to be able to communicate to people directly. And so just as a pure business calculation for Twitter, it really needs people to continue to paying attention to Twitter. And if Trump is the person who gets them to do that, then um, they really have an incentive to keep that up. Um, I don't know in this political environment whether it makes a difference anyway, if only because Americans um, in so many cases have already made up their minds about whatever it is uh, the issue at hand that it may only just agitate the people who are affected. But you know, one thing the Trump campaign has done on that case specifically after Twitter has uh, suspended um, specific posts based on their content or flagged them because the president has talked about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, is that it has prompted Trump's campaign to send out fundraising emails saying, big tech are out to get us. These guys are biased and they're trying to silence the president. You know, will you click here and send $5 to Trump for America to help us, you know, take the fight to them? So the, the merits, the factual merits in some of those cases are less material than the um, outrage that the campaign perceives it creates among supporters, which then becomes the stuff of uh, a fundraising appeal. Um, it would be an interesting white paper to read from a university uh, department or a scholar about public information about the effect of that kind of labeling. I just have no idea what it would say. 
Phil, as always, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I hope that we can come back to you after November 3rd. I, I, we may not have election results, but let's check in again and you know, talk about the process, if nothing else. Okay, thank you. Today, we've been talking with journalist and NPR election security editor, Philip Ewing, about the security of the upcoming presidential election. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. And Spectrum also is available to you at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.